online, welcome as well. I'm Pastor Trevor. I'm glad you could join us uh, this morning. Uh, I'm looking forward to this being the last day of winter. If you've noticed in the forecast, spring arrives tomorrow. I don't care if it's January 21st. Spring is here tomorrow. Um, I, I believe in global warming in, in, this, in this case. So we're going to go press, press on and believe that spring is coming tomorrow. Uh, before we get started, I, I want to kind of plot the course uh, ahead for us in, in the coming weeks uh, as the uh, scheduling um, gets a little squirrely. Um, I have a couple conferences and with the trip, co trip to the Congo um, in between those, um, the pulpit fill is going to be um, kind of all over the place. Uh, today we're in Judges, uh, but next week uh, we're not going to be. Next week we have one of our supported uh, missionaries with Reach Global, uh, Jim Snyder. He's going to be here and he's going to be bringing us uh, the word. Um, and then the following Sunday, we'll be back in Judges. Uh, but then that week, um, the e EFCA Theology Conference will be going on. Uh, so when I get back from that, uh, that following Sunday, I'll be preaching um, a topical sermon on the use of wine and strong drink in Scripture. And then we'll go back to Judges for one Sunday because I then leave for Congo on the 21st. And I'll be gone for two Sundays, uh, at which point Philip Runke will be filling in for me. And then we'll be back in Judges for one more Sunday before I leave for another conference in North Carolina. So someone will be filling the pulpit that following Sunday. And then we'll be back in Judges for two more Sundays. And then I'll have my ear surgery and I'll be out that following uh, Sunday. So um, the next couple months uh, will be kind of all over in regards to the, the messages that will be coming. Hopefully not in quality but in terms of being in Judges and then out of Judges, uh, we're going to be going back and forth uh, quite a bit. We'll still finish up Judges either the first or second Sunday of, of April. Now, if you lost after all that, that, that's fine. Point is, just every Sunday, it's going to be a little something different for the most part from here and until April. Before we begin our message this morning, let's go to our Father in Heaven in prayer. Gracious God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, Father, that you have blessed us with another Lord's Day, another opportunity for us to, to gather, to be encouraged, to be refreshed, to be strengthened uh, by the Spirit, by your Word, by one another as we sing songs and, and, and hymns of, of praise uh, to you, for you, and, and about you, Father. We ask that you would help us to hear your voice this morning, not to be distracted, not to be blinded or um, overwhelmed by the pains, the anxieties, the cares, or even the pleasures, the lights and joys of, of this life, Father, but that we would seek the truth, know the truth, hear the truth, be shaped by it, and in doing so, Father, that we would come and know your love all the more, and to know you all the more. So, Father, help us to be attentive this morning. May your spirit convict us as necessary, edify, equip, and encourage us as necessary, and shape us more into the image of your Son. So as we go out from here, Father, that we would glorify you in all that we would do. We ask these things, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name and the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're, we're now in the third week of the Samson cycle, and we'll have one more week of the Samson cycle after uh, today. Uh, so if you haven't already, please open up your Bibles to Judges chapter 15. Uh, if you need a Bible, we have Bibles underneath the seats around you. Uh, we are going to do, as we always do, we will look at the text, and then we will look at ourselves in light of the text. Judges 15 wraps up Samson's affairs um, in Timnah, 
uh, that we read about last week in chapter 14. And they also begin to show us uh, how Samson's influence among his people and among the Philistines has grown and is growing. Uh, the author will do this as he continues to highlight the poor character of Samson, the idolatry of Israel, while highlighting the steadfast love and faithfulness of Yahweh towards his sinful and idolatrous people. You'll notice as we read this chapter that it is full of back and forth actions between uh, Samson and the Philistines, and our reading of the text will reflect uh, that nature. Uh, so let us begin with Judges 15, and we'll start in verse 1. After some days, at the time of, of wheat harvest, so the wheat harvest um, in the area of, of Israel is about May-ish, end of May, early June, depending on, on, on the weather and so forth, um, and this detail comes into play later. It, these details like this, anytime you come to scripture and there's a, a timing there or a mention of like it's wheat harvest or that, there, there's usually a reason for that. Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And Samson said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she is? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do, do them harm. So if you recall, the final verse of chapter 14, which I probably should have saved uh, for this week, uh, we're told that Samson's wife was, was given to his best man. Uh, right? and, and so remember, he was given 30 companions for the, for the wedding. And out of those 30 companions, one of them was designated as best man. And that best man uh, received... Uh, Samson's wife, and unbeknownst to, to Samson, he was not told of this apparently, uh, so that his father-in-law gave her away. So this account is how Samson has found out. So let's read on and see what kind of harm Samson has planned for the Philistines. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches, and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails, and when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain. So, hence the wheat harvest, right? Mention the wheat harvest lets you know standing grain. It's, it's there. And so, mentioning it sets the scene for this. Into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain. And the standing grain, right? So, it's stacked because it's harvest time. As well as the olive orchard. Now, these foxes, the Hebrew word for foxes is the same word for jackals. Right, so most translations keep with fox. Some translations, like the New English translation, has jackals. And jackals makes more sense. Jackals are a pack animal. Foxes are solitary animals. Uh, now, of course, it could have been foxes. But if you're going to capture 300 of an animal, typically a pack is going to be more logical. Now, we've got to be careful with that. Just because it's more logical doesn't mean it's what, it's what happened. Right? We must not allow our logic to necessarily doubt, uh, we shouldn't allow logic all to always dictate our interpretation of the text or the translation of the text. So I lean towards it being 300 jackals, but could have been foxes, and, and he ties them tail to tail. Now why would he do it tail to tail? Well, if you don't tie an animal tail to tail, if it's just one animal with a torch, um, it's more likely just to like run off, run away. If you tie them tail to tail, they're kind of um, opposing one another, keeping one another um, in, in check from 
more like in a zigzag, more than likely, and, and they're less likely to be able to snuff it out because the other one's doing the opposite thing that the other animal is doing. If, if an animal has one torch on its own, it's more likely to do what it wants, to snuff it out, to, to run on its own. Um, at least that, that, that seems to be the reasoning as to why he did them a tail to a tail. So he, he strikes at the heart of the Philistines' economy, right? It's harvest time. And if you're a farmer, harvest time is money time. It's where you make your money. He's going after the economy of the Philistines. So how will the Philistines uh, respond to this? Verse 6, then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnites, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. The Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. So the Philistines did the very thing to Samson's wife that his wife was worried about being done to her in chapter 14, right? Remember when uh, the companions were trying to figure out the riddle, like, hey, you need to give us the answer to the riddle. If you don't, we'll burn you with fire. And so she nagged and pleaded and cried before Samson, and Samson gave them an answer. Well, that end that she was trying to avoid has inevitably come upon her as well as her father. So how will Samson respond to this action? Will he respond? Verse 7. Samson said to them, the Philistines, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etam. So what Samson did here exactly is unclear. We're, we're just giving this, this expression. Struck them hip and thigh with a, a great blow. And so whereas the details of exactly what he did are, is unclear, the point isn't. He gave them a, a good wallop. He, he, he handily defeated them, probably killed a bunch of them, uh, but it doesn't tell us if he just severely wounded them, but more than likely in the context since his former wife and father-in-law father were burned, he probably killed them as well. After he does that, this act of violence, he goes and he goes to the cleft of the rock and eats him. And where Etam is, we are not sure. Note here what has been missing so far in all the events of chapter 15. And that wasn't missing in chapter 14, the spirit of Yahweh. See, in the capturing of the jackals or the whipping of the Philistines, the spirit's not mentioned. Earlier when Samson would take on such remarkable feats, the spirit was always mentioned. So what's, what's going on now? Is the author showing us that Samson possesses some incredible natural strength apart from God? Or is the author intentionally deciding to leave out the spirit, thinking, well, I've already established early on, clearly, that the strength of Samson belongs to Yahweh, that he gets it from the spirit, so he doesn't see the need to mention it. And I think it is that uh, second option, because even in chapter 16 and verse 20, the author clearly states that Samson, after he has his head shaved, says, um, that Yahweh had left Samson, uh, indicating he no longer has strength. So the author sticks with, uh, with the understanding that the strength of Samson is clearly connected with Yahweh. However, the author will still mention that the spirit rushes upon Samson at certain points. And, and as we'll see, uh, especially in this chapter, that's to highlight Yahweh's decisive role in that particular event, as, as in he is the authoritative figure behind this, um, rather than highlighting Yahweh as the source of 
strength, even though he is the source of strength. So let's read on and see how the Philistines respond to this act of Samson. Verse 9, Then the Philistines came and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. So now the conflict between Samson and the Philistines, it's escalating. It's no longer a, a personal affair. It's now involving other Israelites. And if this story, if this account of Samson is new to you, you, you might be wondering, well, this is Samson's moment. This is his Gideon moment, his Abimelech moment. This is when he's going to rally Israel behind him. Because now the Philistines, the oppressor, have, they have gone into Israel's land and they're oppressing them. And they're seeking to get him, and now the men of Judah are involved. This is it. He's going to rally the troops behind him, just like all the other judges. This is the moment where God is going to rally Israel behind his chosen deliverer to free them from the oppressors. Well, let's read on, and let's see how the men of Judah respond to this Philistine incursion. Verse 11. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is, th is this that you have done to us? Samson said to them, as they did to me, so I have done to them. And the men of Judah said to him, We have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes. And brought him up from the rock. So the men of Judah, God's people, who are guilty of idolatry and sin, they have been given over to the Philistines as judgment by God for their idolatry. They have been oppressed by the Philistines for quite some time now. And a moment comes before them. God's divinely chosen leader has rattled the Philistines. He has rightly disturbed the status quo. And he's clearly shown that he possesses some sort of divine blessing in his interactions with the Philistines, the oppressors of Israel, the oppressors of Judah. And yet these men, they are more than content to stay in their bondage, more than content to stay in their, to stay oppressed. There's 3,000 men. This would have been a, a sizable military force for a regional conflict. They definitely a, a good starting point to get the momentum going to get other men to get the other tribes of Israel to go along with them. But these men, they are cowards. They are idolaters. They are sinners. Rather than rallying behind Samson and asking him, what shall we do? They reject Yahweh by embracing the bondage. They reject Yahweh by rejecting Samson. These men, they don't want deliverance. And, and, and who knows exactly what the reason is. Maybe because they think the the cost is too high. The price is, is too much. The sacrifice is too much. They could die. They could lose their families. They could lose their crops. The oppression could be made worse. Clearly, they don't know who Yahweh is, nor what he calls them to. Otherwise, they would not have taken Yahweh's judge and personally delivered him over to their oppressors. And so having bound Samson with new ropes, and that's intentional detail there, right? New ropes are going to be strong ropes. Right, like if you ever get into climbing, a climbing rope has like a certain amount of life on it. After a number of climbs, 
you ought to replace those ropes. So these are new ropes. And so they bring them to the Philistines. And let's read how the Philistines um, react uh, to Samson coming to them. Verse 14. When he came to Lehi, the, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. And then the spirit of Yahweh rushed upon him. So now we have the spirit being involved. And, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire in its bonds, melted off his hands. Note, Samson doesn't tear the ropes off. No, rather, this, this is the work of Yahweh. The spirit of Yahweh rushed upon Samson, and the ropes became like uh, flax that has caught fire. In other words, very weak. Right? So like weak enough for probably any one of us here to, to break. This isn't a, a reference to Samson's strength. It's a reference to Yahweh freeing Samson in this moment. And Samson found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and, and took it. So, so this fresh jawbone, it's, it's, a, uh, it's essentially a corpse. Once again, Samson is defiling himself by touching something that is unclean. This is from a this isn't like a, a donkey that's been there a while. This is like a fresh donkey on the side of the road. Put out his hand, took it, and with it struck a thousand men. Uh, a thousand here could be a, a literal thousand. It could be a, a rounded number to represent a large undefined number. Uh, the Hebrew word can, can point to either one. But again, we, we must not choose simply it's a large undefined number because we lack faith or we, we doubt such an event could be. We, we don't want that to determine the text. Uh, with Obviously with the spirit of God on Samson, a thousand men surely is possible. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. Samson clearly is a poet with all the riddles and songs that he's creating. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramath Lehi. So this name of this place means the hill of the jawbone or jawbone hill, right? You think it'd be like a Hollywood movie, a, either a military movie or a horror movie, depending on how you want to take it. And this isn't to say that this battle occurred on a hill, right? That's not why he's naming it jawbone hill. Um, the, the place very well could have been flat, could have been in, in, a, in a valley. This, the name actually refers to the corpses, to the dead bodies that he's piled up. Note the song, the, the little jig that he created with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. Well, what are the heaps upon heaps? Dead Philistines. Uh, if you take a thousand Philistines, dead bodies, and you put them heaps upon heaps, you're going to have a hill. I mean, that's a lot of bodies, right? And so he's, he's maybe he himself piled them up as a monument to himself. I mean, a more literal translation for the name could be the height of the jawbone. In other words, look, look what this jawbone did. All these corpses piled up. That's the hill. Right? If you were to go see Jawbone Hill now, it, it's all decayed. It's, it's not there. Their flesh is, is gone. Their scavengers have had their way with it because um, it's not a literal hill. Now, it could have happened on a hill, but that's not what the name is associated with. Now, note how this name gives no credit to Yahweh. Yahweh's not being named here. Not even, not even his impersonal name, Elohim, is being used here. And unfortunately, it's not the only time that Samson names something without giving due credit. Let's finish out the chapter, verse 18. And Samson was very thirsty. That's reasonable. Just killed a thousand men. 
And he called upon Yahweh and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servants. Shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called En-Hakari. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. So if you want to go find out where this location of this Corpse Hill was, you just go find this spring um, in, uh, by Lehi called En-Hakori. This is the first time that we see Samson crying out to God. In fact, it's the first time in this cycle that we see anyone crying out to God. Normally we see the crying out after God sends the oppressors, before God raises up a, a judge. This time we don't get the crying out until, until now. So after the judge has been uh, named, blessed, and started his work. And in, in this instance, the, the crying out is not because of God's judgment, as it ought to be. Rather, it's for personal reasons. It's reasons rooted in selfish preservation. Thus, God, in keeping with his steadfast love and compassion, he causes a, a hollow place, a, a, a more what that's speaking about is a, a rock with a roundish depression in it. Think of a, a mortar where you would like uh, pound grain uh, with, with another stone or something, ground grain, and that's what it's referring to, a hollow place in a rock. The hollow place, of God caused to spring a lake from a spring underneath it, and Samson's soul was revived. So the blessing of Yahweh, it revives the life of Samson, and Samson as it would be appropriate, names the place. Right? We see this often through the Old Testament. God does something, he speaks to somebody, he blesses somebody, and that person who receives that blessing, that receives that revelation, will, will put a name on the place. Well, Samson does the same thing. And, and we, we would hope that Samson would honor God with that name, as, as often like the patriarchs did in Genesis. But he doesn't. In keeping with who Samson is, he names it essentially after himself. The, the name in Hakori, um, as many of your Bibles will tell you, means the spring of him who called, or, or the spring of the caller, the spring of the namer. In other words, the spring of the one who cried out. And who cried out? Samson cried out. So he, he's essentially giving honor to himself. He's naming it after his actions and not so much after the actions of Yahweh. If anything, it makes Yahweh out to be some genie or some servant uh, of Samson that just comes to Samson's um, service whenever Samson has a need, whenever he rings the bell. And then just in case the author's audience have forgotten, which would be easy with all that's been going on, the author reminds us this is Yahweh's judge. He tells us in verse 20 that Samson judged Israel for 20 years. Now typically that statement would conclude the cycle. Right? We, we have been getting that statement at the end of each cycle, but in this final cycle, we get it here. And we're going to get it again. So the question is, why do we get it here? And there's possibly two reasons for that. One, the author states here to remind us, yes, this guy, this Samson, this man, he is the judge. Yes, he's doing all these things, but don't forget, he's God's judge. And or second reason is that he's, he mentions it here to break up the Timnah account of Samson with the account of Samson in Gaza. Two accounts that occur 
like 45 miles apart. So it could be both, but I do think at the very least he's intentionally reminding his audience of who Samson is. Because Samson, by his actions, by his words, is anything but a man chosen by God. He, he doesn't have any holiness in him outside of the fact that God is using him. So, with all that being said, what does that and what does this chapter teach us? What does it show us? What do we learn about God? What are we reminded of? Well, first, let's consider how the chapter ends with a reminder by the author. This man, Samson, is the one God has called, that God has blessed and continues to bless in spite of what he is doing, to do Yahweh's work. So this ought to cause us, as it probably did for the author's audience, to strongly consider the mercy and grace of God. It, it really is unfathomable that, that God is this patient with his people, that he's this patient with this man who was blessed before he even left the womb. That Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God who is one, who is unique, unlike any other, who is holy, holy in all ways that we cannot fathom, this God, our God, your God, he's merciful and compassionate. He's full of grace and steadfast love. In spite of Samson's continued ignorance, continued arrogance, continued acts of defilement and selfish vengeance and preservation, God still acts, God still moves, God still loves his people. And, and beyond Samson, Israel, the nation, the men of Judah, the people, they are guilty too. And yet in spite of Israel's sin, in spite of their idolatry, in spite of their willingness to endure the oppression, to tolerate uh, their oppression, their bondage, their sin, God acts. See, Yahweh will free his people. Whether they want to be free or not, he is going to free them. No amount of so-called free will will keep God from accomplishing his will on this matter. And why does he do this? Because they are his people. And they don't belong to another. And thus they will not belong to another. Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6. God speaking to Moses and his people. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall, right, future tense, be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8, uh, we get this again, but we also get the reasoning as to why God chose them. For you are a people holy to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that Yahweh says love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples but it's because Yahweh loves you. In other words, there's nothing about you, is nothing about you is why I chose you, simply because of my love, my grace, and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that Yahweh has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Consider also Psalm 135, verse 4, for Yahweh has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his own possession. Thus, God will act when his people, when they choose to bow down and serve other gods, he will act. And that's because he is a jealous God. Exodus 34, verses 13 to 14. 
talking about when his people go into the land, you shall tear down their altars, break their pillars, and cut down their ashram. Well, why? For you shall worship no other god, right? Think of the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, which he's already given. For Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now, this jealousy of God, it's not like what Oprah thinks. This isn't like a, a vindictive jealousy, right? He, he's jealous because he, his people, they are precious to him. They are special to him. They are holy to him, and he will keep them holy. It is a, it is a sacrificial love type jealousy where he will do whatever it takes to protect his people. He is jealous for them, just like a husband who's faithful to his wife will be jealous for her protection and for her good, or parents for their kids. You will be jealous for their good because you love them. It's not a vindictive, selfish jealousy. Now, while God takes it upon himself to keep his people and to do deliver his people, we must not think that this gives license for sin or a license to act like Samson. Or, or, or the men of Judah, right? If we're not careful, we could look at this and go, yeah, look at his grace. Look at his compassion. Samson, the men of Judah, they love their bondage. They're, they're just going on with it. So why can't we? Why can't we be lustful, selfish, and arrogant like Samson? We need to keep in mind that the way of Samson's life leads to death, captivity, blindness. And as we will see when we which we will see uh, when we conclude his cycle in chapter 16. We must not waste the grace of God, and we must not abuse the love that he has shown for us. See, how we steward God's grace shows to whom we belong. And either you will show yourself to be of God, or you, you will not. You will either show yourself as embracing the will of Yahweh or embracing the bondage of the Philistines. But perhaps you say, well, Israel, Israel was a nation. Israel was an ethnic people. They were in a covenant with God. They clearly knew who they were. They were literally, physically born into this covenant. They, no doubt as to who they belonged to. But today, that's not true for God's people. So how do we know if we are God's people today? Well, first, let's consider the old covenant and the end of it. We know that while God is a jealous God, and while Israel was a people of, of God under the old covenant, their failure to obey that old covenant, to stay away from idolatry, ultimately led to their exile. It, it led to God forsaking his people for a time, and, and never completely forsaking it. Right? He was paving the way for the new covenant, but the spirit, as Ezekiel tells us, the spirit of Yahweh left his people. He couldn't stand their idolatry anymore, so he left his people for their sake by giving them over to their enemies. And that paved the way for the new covenant. Hear the words of the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 31, 34, um, through 34, which Jeremiah gets well after the spirit of Yahweh left his people and left the temple. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, 
know Yahweh, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now, now remember that expression, know Yahweh there, is a call to obedience, right? So like in the Old Testament, in Israel, if somebody was being disobedient, you would say, you need to know God. You need to know Yahweh. Because if you knew Yahweh, you were obedient. It's not just simply about knowing that he's there. It's about listening and obeying him. You can't know him unless you obey him. So what God is getting at there is that they shall all obey me because they shall all know me because my law will be written on their hearts. Now, this new covenant, as most of you know, it was ushered in by Christ, right? Luke twenty-two twenty. Likewise, at the supper, Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So that, that begs the question, well, how does one today become partakers of the new covenant? Or another way to ask this would be, how does one become part of God's people? How does one join God's holy nation? How does one become one of his royal priests? How is one able to claim Yahweh as their God and have Yahweh claim them as his? Well, Essentially, it's all by the grace of God through faith, right? Ephesians 2.8. I don't have the verse up there. I hope that by this point we're very familiar with it. If not, you can look it up. But consider John chapter 3. All of it. I'm not going to read all of it, though. But John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus, so Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He's asking him questions. Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 5. Nicodemus is still confused by this. So in verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Right? That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again, or born from above. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his, world, his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. In other words, whoever believes in him is part of the new covenant. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So if you believe in Jesus Christ, and who he is and what he has done, you're in. You're a partaker of the new covenant. You, you are what Peter says you are in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, where he says you are a chosen race. And note the present tense here, right? Peter's writing to believers. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession, right? This is Exodus 19, 5, 6 being fulfilled through the church through the new covenant that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light once you were not a people but now you are God's people once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy but still this leaves might, might leave you wondering well how do I know how, how do I know that what I believe about Jesus or how do I know that my belief my faith in Christ how do I know it's been accepted? How do I know that this is for me? John 3, 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, 
And people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In other words, if you're part of the new covenant, you're fine with your works being exposed. Because you're going to repent. You're seeking the light. You're seeking to walk in truth. However, if you're trying to hide from the light, judgment's upon you. You don't love the light. You love the darkness. See, Samson was ignorant. He and Israel, they lived during a time they had forgotten Yahweh and his word. The priesthood was defunct and corrupt as recorded for us in 1 Samuel. And yet God was gracious toward them. And he didn't need to be. And they still suffered the consequences of their sin. But they remained his people. But that was a different time, a different age. Today, we live by the Spirit. We live by the power of the kingdom. He who is least in the kingdom is greater than even John the Baptist, who, as Jesus described John the Baptist in Matthew eleven eleven, was the greatest among all those, among everybody born of a woman, John the Baptist was the greatest. And that would include Moses. However, those in the kingdom, the least in the kingdom, is greater than he. Well, how can that be? Well, how are you in the kingdom? It's not because you're born of a woman. It's because you are born again. See, those in the kingdom, they are sons of righteousness. They are sons of light. Those of the kingdom walk in righteousness. They walk in the light. They walk in the truth. They don't walk in unrighteousness. In other words, they don't do the deeds of sin, of darkness, of the devil. They do the deeds of, of God. They show them to be who they are. We, the people of God, we desire the things of Christ. We desire the things of our King, of our Lord and Savior, not the things of this age, not the things of this flesh, but Christ and Christ alone. We are no longer enslaved to sin. Sin no longer controls us. When we were enslaved to sin, we desired nothing but sin, nothing but our idols. We were like the 3,000 men of Judah. We were like the, the men of Israel handing their deliverer over to their oppressor because we didn't know any better. And they didn't only do that in the days of Samson. They also did in the days of Christ. Remember, who would you have me release for you, Jesus or Barabbas? Jesus, the anointed one before them, had done all the miracles, had clearly shown God's divine appointment on him. And the men of Israel still yelled, crucify. Samson, we've got to bind you. Yeah, we know you've done all these things against our oppressors, but we're going to hand you over. Jesus, we know you fed us. You gave us all these things. You've healed people. Caused people to raise from the dead. We're still going to yell, crucify. And then at Pentecost, 3,000. It's kind of interesting. We've got 3,000 men of Judah here. Then at Pentecost, 3,000 men are come to faith. And they were part of the crucifixion process. It's what we do when we're enslaved to the devil. It's what we do when we are children of wrath. No one's righteous. It's only by God's grace that we have been set, set free. And thus, having been set free from sin and death, we now live with Christ, who died to set us free. See, our salvation, our, our participation in the new covenant, it's not a mystery. 
No one should be left wondering, am I saved? Where's the good news in that? Where's the peace and joy of Christ? When you're always wondering day to day, am I going to make it into the kingdom today? Am I, am, have I been faithful enough? Did I weep enough over my sin? Did, did I serve the church faithfully? It, did, did I keep from sin good enough? Have I done away with the big sins in my life enough to where I can enter into the kingdom? There's no peace there, right? That's the fallacy, one of the many fallacies of Roman Catholic theology. You've got to do these things to stay in God's grace. We have the scriptures, right? First John tells us, I write these things to you so that you may know, not so that you may be confident, like mostly confident in your salvation, but that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may be fully and wholly without a doubt confident. This is what leads you to die for the faith. It's what leads you to go out to, to across the world, to do missions and to reach the lost and to serve the lost here, the oppressed here, because you're like, I have everything I need. And I don't doubt it. And why? Because you have the word of God. Because the word of God is given to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. That you know that you have our Savior. That he is close to you. His spirit is in you. Paul, Romans 6, 6, 14 writes, We know that our old self is crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Right? So don't ever use the excuse, sin has control over me. Only use that if, if, if you're not a believer. If you're a believer, sin does not have control over you. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again, which means neither will we. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God, right? The life he lives, he lives to God, meaning he walks in righteous obedience. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, which means that we live in righteous obedience, not unrighteous obedience. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Why? For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. There's no excuse outside of a sinful one for you to sin. It has no control over you. You have a spirit of power, love, and self-control in you. Not one of fear, not one of timidity. You have the spirit of Christ. You have the spirit that empowered Samson in you. Therefore, all this being said, recognizing the grace of God in your lives, choose today whom you will serve. Will you serve Yahweh or the Philistines? Will you serve God or self, Christ or Satan? Light, darkness, life, or death. And if you do serve God, be encouraged. Don't let your sin weigh you down or discourage you from the life of the faith. If you believe in him and you trust in him who has called you, there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. Maintain that mentality of the tax collector. 
Father, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. Look to Christ. Continue to plead to the one who is our advocate, who, who is also our judge, who pleads and intercedes for us before the Father. Jesus is the one who has called you, and because he has called you, he has also qualified you. He has not said, hey, I want you, but first you must do these things. He calls you, and he qualifies you by his work. So he will also sanctify and glorify you, and you have been sanctified. He will see you through. He will complete his work in you. So continue on diligently, reverently, and faithfully. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace that we can barely fathom, Father. You, you give us a taste of it. And I think we often fail to, to really grasp the extent of it because we, we, we can't comprehend the fullness of your holiness. So, so, Father, we thank you that you're patient with us. We thank you that you've given us your word to help us to understand these things, to help us understand your steadfast love for your people. Continue to give us a spirit of humility as, as we come to these wonderful mysteries and as we come to who you are, and we ask that you would grant us understanding um, where, we, where, we, where we can have it, but that you would also grant us the faith when we just simply can't comprehend it. Father, help us to, to walk by the light. Help us to stand in Christ faithfully. Help us to be the witnesses of your grace, witnesses of your power and truth of the good news. Help us to live accordingly in light of that, that we have been freed from our sin, not because we were wise enough to choose you, but by your grace, through faith, by the work of your Son. Father, you, you know the sins in this congregation, you know the idols amongst the sheep here, I ask that you would break them, especially if, if we are unwilling to give them up. We ask for you to intervene. We, 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 we cry out for the things that we don't even know that we need. We, we cry out for you, Father, in all things. And we ask and we trust that the Spirit would give words to what we cannot or, or know not. Forgive us of our ignorance. Forgive us of our arrogance. And may we seek to love one another as we seek to love you, and may how we love one another be an expression of that love. Teach us that. May we continually go to your word. May your spirit continually do his work of conviction and building up. And may we continue to glorify you in all that we do. Father, we ask that you'd bless uh, the table before us, the, the bread and the cup, that as we come to it, we would confess sins, seek repentance by your grace, that we would receive the help in time of need, and that as we take the elements, receive them, that the taste would linger and that we would be reminded of the gospel as we go out from here, that it is finished, that your son is going to return. He is going to judge the righteous and the unrighteous. So, Father, help us to live accordingly in light of that truth as we anxiously await in holy anticipation of your son returning. Father, we give up all these things for, for your glory by the power of the Spirit in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.